When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 248. Today's episode is all about how chronic indecision is linked to anticipatory anxiety. You basically cannot solve the problem of too much thinking with more thinking. And most of that is because of where you're located in time. Most of your thinking is in the future, in your imagination, what could happen, what might happen, what I could do, what I should do. Whereas if you shift out of thinking, into a sensory experience, what is happening right now? What can I smell? What can I hear? Where am I? What's going on right in this very moment? That's sensory input. That's the present moment. And there's no emergency going on then. And you shift away from what if, what if to what is, what is. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means Mind Love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. I also want to let you know about a couple changes coming up. On Tuesdays, I've been posting main episodes from episode 248, 249, you get the picture. And on Fridays, I've been posting exclusive episodes where they're public for a little bit and then they go gated. Starting this week, I'm just counting up from 248. So Friday will be 249, then 250, you get the idea. Right now, there's over 50 episodes that are just for premium members. Soon, there's gonna be 100 episodes just for premium members. So if you're not a premium member, Go binge some of those exclusive episodes that are only going to be public for a little while. Otherwise, you can join premium at mindlove.com slash premium and get access to all of it. Mindlove.com slash premium. Do you have a hard time making up your mind? Do you ever wonder why some people just choose and you can't? Maybe your indecision pops up when ordering at restaurants or deciding your next action which might actually lead to doing nothing at all. Maybe you couldn't decide what you wanted to be, so you ended up in whatever career you landed in. Maybe you get stuck on Amazon for hours just deciding between a thousand versions of the same product. Maybe you get so caught up in how you're going to do something that you never end up doing it. So you distract yourself by ordering food from Uber Eats but can't decide what to get. I used to be really indecisive. And I still can be, but I've definitely made major improvements. The weird thing is, is I used to wear it kind of like a badge of honor, which is actually really common and strange if you think about it. I feel like I hear someone proclaim this almost every time I'm in a coffee shop, usually with women, unfortunately, saying, sorry, I'm just so indecisive. 
I used to wonder why some people just choose, and I couldn't. We all do it sometimes. Avoiding decisions is a very common thing, if you haven't noticed. But most people tend to get on with their lives, while others let it stop them from living, or at least living well. If you look up why people are indecisive, you'll get a number of answers, like people-pleasing, or perfectionism, or fear of taking responsibility. But all of these things come back to one thing, anticipatory anxiety, which is basically getting anxious about the possibility of being anxious. And we'll get much deeper into this in the episode, but what you need to know now is that it's a form of anxiety. And it's basically when you get hijacked by your own imagination. And I think that some people underestimate the negative effects that this can really have on their lives. It's a whole spectrum that can range from just getting in your own way or never following your dreams to never leaving your house or never dating again because the last time something unexpected happened that freaked you out and you just can't risk it again. And because of the processes happening inside your brain, willpower not only doesn't work, it actually makes it worse. So it's nearly impossible to tell yourself, oh, I just won't get anxious this time. But the thing is, Indecision is not a personality trait. It's a behavioral problem. And yeah, I know that makes your coffee shop order a little less cute. I will disclose that no one around you thinks it's cute anyways, so I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But the good news is, that means it can be changed. But in order to change it, it's helpful to, or maybe even necessary, to understand a few things, like our personal areas of sensitivity, like when indecision comes up, the patterns that we create when we avoid decisions, and the underlying issues that can cause it. So that's what we're talking about today. And our guest is Dr. Sally Winston. She's a clinical psychologist, a master clinician in anxiety disorders and OCD, and co-author of four books with Dr. Martin Seif. She's also the founder and executive director of the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute. So three key things we will learn are Why trying harder to face your fears and using willpower to force decisions simply does not work. Why avoidance reinforces anticipatory anxiety and chronic indecisiveness. And the five steps of surrender to overcome it. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Sally Winston to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So what intrigued you to focus your latest work on anticipatory anxiety specifically? Well, um, Dr. Seif and I wrote uh, two earlier books, uh, one on intrusive thoughts, which is basically obsession, and one on reassurance seeking and checking, which is basically compulsion. And then what we realized that there's actually a third component to a lot of anxiety. There's the what if part and there's the attempt to make yourself feel better part. 
But there's also this other phenomenon that happens in all kinds of anxiety that comes in OCD and phobia and depression and all kinds of situations, which is the anxiety that comes when you're anticipating or expecting or waiting for something that you expect you're going to have trouble with, it's going to make you anxious, you might not be able to handle, you don't know how it's going to turn out. And it's in anticipation of that, the worry about something that's coming up in the future, or that you even just imagine might be coming up in the future. And so there hasn't been a lot of uh, work written about anticipatory anxiety, but it's actually what we call a transdiagnostic phenomenon. It happens in all different kinds of situations and different kinds of anxiety. So we thought we'd write a book about that. So anticipatory anxiety is, is almost being afraid of your anxiety or being anxious that you might have anxiety coming up. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Yeah. Well, we talk about it as being actually the third level of fear because there's fear and then there's fear of the fear and then there's fear of the fear of the fear. And that's anticipatory anxiety. It sounds weird, but let me give you an example and it'll make sense. So let's say I'm scared of a bee. I'm afraid of a bee. But then what if I'm afraid that if I might see a bee, I would have a panic attack and it would stress out my heart so much that I would have a heart attack and die. So that's called fear of fear. And that's panic disorder. But there's another level to this, which is what we call the avoidance layer, the fear of fear of fear, which is I'm thinking of maybe signing up for a camping trip, but what if I see a bee and I have a panic attack? I'm going to worry about that for the next three months. I think maybe I won't sign up for the camping trip. So it's the level of avoidance when you anticipate or you think about or you imagine that you're going to get uh, have an outcome that you don't want or that there'll be something you can't handle. And there comes with it this very strong urge to do anything to not get into that circumstance. And so it provokes a great deal of avoidance. It almost sounds like this level of fear is can be the most debilitating because you're not even waiting for an opportunity to, for the fear to come. You're assuming that it's probably going to come in more instances than maybe it would. And so then you're just sort of shutting off parts of your life. You're absolutely right. It is in many ways the most debilitating because it, it provokes such a, a huge amount of avoidance behavior and people don't do things that they would otherwise get to do. And so it can really interfere with your life. And what happens is that um, um, so much happens in your imagination and it's so vivid and you're so hijacked by it that you really think that you don't have a choice except to avoid it in some way. And that gets to be a tremendous intrusion in your life. And most phobias have a huge amount of anticipatory anxiety. One of the things that we discovered a long time ago about panic disorder, people have panic attacks, is that many times if you ask them, when was your last panic attack? Uh, and they're housebound and they can't go anywhere and they're very severe agoraphobia, secondary to panic, is they'll say, well, it was in, you know, it was 11 years ago. And they'll say, well, 
what's going on. And it's anticipatory anxiety that's keeping them in the house because they're afraid that if they go out and they get anxious that they'll have a panic attack, they won't be able to stand it, so they have to stay home. That's where the, the debilitating effect comes from. And it's very demoralizing. And the thing that's so interesting about this is that anticipatory anxiety, anxiety is pretty much a liar. It seems to be telling you or predicting or warning or it seems like a red flag. If you if I have this much anxiety now, I'll never be able to handle it next week, right? So it seems like it's warning you. And in fact, it has absolutely no predictive capacity whatsoever. It doesn't tell you if it's going to go well, if it doesn't tell you if it's going to go badly. It does a lot of lying. And very, very often, if you push through the anticipatory anxiety, you actually do the thing. It's like, well, that wasn't so bad. And you then you're mad at yourself for all the bleeding that you did before you ever got caught. And then you never did get caught. You know, if you think about kids who are like screaming, they don't want to get an injection, you know, and it goes for hours and hours of screaming and tantrums and misery. And, you know, they, they don't want the needle. I hate needles. I'm scared of needles. And then you finally give it to them. And it's like, well, that's it. You know, but the thing is that they you think, well, they finally learned that injections aren't so terrible. But what they remember is the anticipatory anxiety. They don't remember that it actually went fine. They remember that, it, that it's a horrible experience because they clump it all together. It reminds me of people who stop trying to find relationships because their relationships have gone bad, where then all of a sudden they're like, no, I'm swearing off men or women or whatever it is, and I'm, I'm never dating again and they don't really remember all of the positive times in a relationship because maybe it went south or maybe they did end up with a sociopath or something like that. But doesn't mean that love itself is going to be the danger. It was just that one experience that's now bleeding through in all of your others. Yeah, and that's the slipperiness of anxiety is that it can move from one thing to another and get stuck at things. And then, you, it, you know, we call it being hijacked by your imagination that you can have a very, very vivid experience, either something that really did happen and it's a memory or a vivid experience of something you've imagined could happen. And it's, it's so vivid that it you become hijacked by it and you think it's, a, it's factual. You think that this is what's really going to happen. And then, of course, it makes perfect sense to not reach out, not to, not to stretch yourself because it feels as if you're taking a massive risk. So what's actually happening in your brain when anticipatory anxiety is created? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. 
He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So what's actually happening in your brain when anticipatory anxiety is created? Oh, that's a great question. It's a little bit complicated because fear circuitry in the brain is pretty complicated. When we see something that's a trigger of some kind, either it can be internal or external, like you see something that scares you, your brain takes in that that trigger and it has an immediate path straight to the limbic system and the central part of the limbic system is called the amygdala. And you have all heard of the fight and flight and freeze response. You get a huge thing, which we call a whoosh, which gives you the experience of rapid onset of anxiety. And that that is what happens when you see something scared. Now, scary, but there's an interesting phenomenon in the brain in that there's a, actually a way station in the brain called the thalamus. And the thalamus is where you process the information that comes in through your senses about what's going on in the world. And then the thalamus is the thing that sends the signal to your amygdala. But it also has another pathway where it sends a signal, and that's uh, sends a signal at the same time to the cortex, which is where we do our thinking and analyzing and judging. The amygdala is stupid. It just is on or off. It's like either you turn the alarm on or you don't. The interesting thing is that the amygdala path is 
very, very fast. And the cortical or thinking path is just a little bit slower. So you actually feel the fear, the big whoosh, before you get a chance to think about it, right? So if you're, the typical example we give is you're walking along a path in the forest and you see something that's long and thin across the pathway and you jump backwards and you get a huge jolt and then you go, oh, it's not a snake, it's a stick. But you get your whoosh first, right? And then you get your analysis of, the, of what's actually there. But what happens with anticipatory anxiety is you get your whoosh and then you get the secondary part that comes in the thinking, which is, okay, so maybe I jumped back because a car was coming at me and it didn't hit me. But then a thought comes up, well, what if I didn't, hadn't jumped back fast enough? Or what if there's another car coming? Or what if I wasn't paying attention and I'm a really bad person to be walking around by myself? I should have someone with me. Or what if, and they start a whole cascade of what ifs and worries about something that didn't actually happen. It just could have happened. And you're busy building basically a bunch of movies, very dramatic movies in your head, all based on this signal that came from your thalamus through to your cortex but it, it's doing a what if. Then what happens is eventually your brain is able to go straight from a what if to the amygdala with passing with immediately. So there's not even any outside thing. You might be just thinking, gee, I'd like to go for a walk. Whoosh! Because what's happened is your what ifs have just jumped in the middle when there's actually nothing going on. It's just your imagination. Does that make sense, what I just said? It does. And so what differentiates anxiety from just fear? Well, that's a question that you that everybody answers differently. <laughs> uh, some people say that fear is rational, so that, you know, if you have a, a saber-toothed tiger running after you, you have reason to be afraid. And um, then they say that anxiety is a response to your own thinking. Um, I actually... I don't think there's that much of a clear distinction between the two. So uh, I think uh, most people um, feel like anxiety is something that they create and that stays with them and that doesn't go away with reassurance. Whereas fear is something where if you're uncertain about something and you get a fact and the fact will quell the fear and then it's over. Whereas with anxiety, if you've got an imagination and you're, uh, uh, you're having obsessional doubts about something, there's no facts that can settle it because it's in your imagination. It's not something that came from the outside. So what role does indecision play in this whole idea of anticipatory anxiety? That's an interesting question. You know, the thing that works the fastest to make anticipatory anxiety go away is the decision to avoid it, right? It works faster than Xanax. Xanax takes a few minutes. <laughs> uh, it works faster than someone reassuring you that everything is gonna be okay, what we call empty reassurance. But if you decide you're not going, whoa, you just feel better instantly. So the decision to avoid works great. But the decision to commit to something also helps reduce anticipatory anxiety 
Because if you don't commit to doing something, then you get in this state, which is maybe I'll go, maybe I won't go. What will people think of me if I do go? I, I have to go, but maybe I can get out of it, but maybe I can delay it, but I don't know. But you go through this rumination and worry process that goes around and around and around, and you keep changing your mind. Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm gonna no, I'll 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 return it. I'm not going to keep it. I, well, no, maybe I will keep it. And all that whole process of back and forth, back and forth, worrying and then trying to tell yourself it's okay, that all is what, what fuels anticipatory anxiety. That keeps it going. But if you decide, I'm doing it, no matter what, even if I feel lousy, I'm willing to feel lousy. I'm just going to do it. I'm committing to it you eliminate all that back and forth, back and forth oscillation. And it doesn't make the anxiety completely go away, but it does reduce it. So decision to avoid makes it go away. Decision to commit reduces it. And indecision is the thing that keeps it going. What I find so fascinating about this topic is if I wasn't so self-aware, I wouldn't realize that a lot of this is even happening in my mind. Like, if you would have told me this 10 years ago, like, do you get anticipatory anxiety? I'd be like, no, that, that sounds crazy. Like, that's a whole lot of internal talking. <laughs> but now, sometimes I'll kind of snap out of my mind where I'm like be becoming the observer of my own thoughts. And and I'm like, oh my God, I don't didn't even realize that you you guys in there, <laughs> my my brain voices are weighing the pros and cons of things or like, I'll kind of touch on like, oh, maybe I'll go. Nah, I don't know. And like, I'll just be doing something else or I'll just think about something else to distract myself. And because I start doing something else, I don't realize that's the whole process of the indecision because I'm avoiding t thinking about it because it's creating a little bit of stress or a little bit of anxiety. So I do something else and then maybe I'll think about it later and maybe it was a goal. And then all of a sudden I'm beating myself up because I keep ignoring that goal. And I'm like, maybe I'll do this. And then I think about doing it. And then I think about failure. And then I do something else instead. And it's this whole mm -hmm. cycle that really does, I think, take a level of self-awareness to realize that it's happening, especially because for me, I don't have like a debilitating phobia that keeps me inside. It's, it's hitting me in all these more subtle ways. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes the subtle ways are a little bit harder to spot, but they're a lot more common. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And that is why we did the books with what we call our three voices of the mind, because I think everybody has those voices, just the ones you were describing. And the three characters talk to each other inside your head. And two of the characters keep anxiety going by their own interaction. The, there's worried mind, which is the what if imagination, worried mind confuses possibility for probability. They think that if something is possible, it's likely. And as a that's the what if worrier imagination suppose future oriented worrying part of the mind. And then we all naturally have an instinct to try to calm worried voice down, but we do it in a way that actually isn't helpful. And that's the voice we call false comfort. 
which is, oh, everything's going to be okay, or you really don't have to go, or, you know, you can just, if you, if you distract yourself, maybe you won't think about it, or don't think something so negative, just think positive, all those kinds of ways people try to respond to their worries that actually don't work at all, what people sometimes call their coping mechanisms, which are usually ways of avoiding in some, in some way, and so they, they, offer something like that to themselves, to their what-if part, and that just stimulates more what-ifing. It doesn't actually make the anxiety go away. And so you have this back and forth between your worried voice and your false comfort, and they go round and round and round, they escalate. But we also have another part of us, which we call wise mind, that actually knows that those guys aren't helping and that really knows an awful lot more than you acknowledge, which is that you can handle things, that these are worries, they're in your imagination, they're not happening, and has a very, uh, what's called a metacognitive or ability to look at what's going on. The wise mind that we all have, we, we can contact and we can ask our own wise mind, you know, what's really likely here, not what could possibly happen, but what's what's actually really likely and can encourage us to do things that are important to us if we're willing to just be uncomfortable, mostly usually either beforehand or at the beginning and get through. So those three voices are talking to each other all the time internally. And when you read the books, you, you start to be able to do what you said, step back and observe not the, so much the content, but the process that's going on. And when you notice the process, you're able to say, wait a minute, I'm in absurd land here. And I think I choose not to be there. One of the things that I learned in my 20s that is something that I still is just one of the biggest learnings of my life is that I usually cannot think my way out of problems. And it's the way I tried to do it forever before that, where it's like, well, if I just sit here and think about it enough, or I'll walk myself through it or whatever. And yes, there's a time and a place for thinking about things, but I've found that when I'm actually feeling an emotion about it, the only way to move through it is through taking action. Like I have to show myself that the outcome can be different. I can't really talk myself into it because I can say all the things that you're saying that second voice says, but like you said, it doesn't actually doesn't help. help. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of my favorite phrases is, is for this kind of process, which is the, what you, what you're calling thinking, trying to think your way out of something, which is the analyzing compulsion or ruminating. And you basically cannot solve the problem of too much thinking with more thinking. And most of that is because of where you're located in time. Most of your thinking is in the future, in your imagination, what could happen, what might happen, what I could do, what I should do, all of this stuff. Whereas if you shift out of thinking into a sensory experience, what is happening right now? What can I smell? What can I hear? Where am I? What's going on right in this very moment? That's sensory input. That's the present moment. And there's no emergency going on then. And you shift away from what if, what if to what is, what is by shifting out of cognition 
into your senses. That's one way of dealing with anticipatory anxiety when you notice that you're doing it and then you step back and you say, well, I think I'll just stay right here. And that's not something you do once, you do it over and over. One phrase I really like is John Kabat-Zinn's phrase, which is when you notice that you're out in the future in what if land, those are my words. And he says, gently and non-judgmentally escort your mind back to the present. And you can best do that not with thinking, but with your senses or with, as you said, with action, with motion, not with action or motion to make your anxiety go away, not with the intention of getting rid of your anxiety, but by bringing into your awareness what's actually going on right now in your present moment, not with an effort to struggle against or get rid of or banish your anxiety, which just gets you all caught up with it, but more you allow it to be there, you give it a nod, and then you come back to where you are right now where nothing bad is happening. Which is why willpower doesn't work because that's basically you getting all of your brain energy to try to talk yourself out of this anxiety. And the right. only thing that's actually going to do that is by being more in your body or being in the present or taking action, which are all ways to kind of connect to that right. present moment. But it also needs to be, the the attitude needs to be a willingness or a passivity, it's not in order to get rid of the anxiety. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. 
Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. But it also needs to be, the, the attitude needs to be a willingness or a passivity. It's not in order to get rid of the anxiety. It's while you're anxious. Let me, let me just give you a brief example I use all the time. Let's say you're driving and you have a scary thought, you know, like a typical scary thought, like what if I suddenly yank the wheel into that truck? You know, it just just you have that thought. Now, most people would even would forget quickly that they had that thought. But if you're worried about yourself or you're an anxious person or you don't trust yourself in some way and you get, oh my God, why did I think that thought? Then you you marshal all your energy to either not think that thought or get rid of that thought or stop imagining car accidents or your funeral or wherever you go in your mind. Now, there's two ways to handle that that involve an action, but they're completely different. Let's say you decide I'm going to turn on the radio and listen to music. You can be doing it this way. I hate what's going on in my mind. I've got to stop thinking it. Maybe if I turn on the radio, I can listen to music and distract myself from it and get rid of it, get rid of the anxiety. And so I'm going to listen to music. Okay, is it working? Is it working? Am I did this? Am I, am I listening to music? Wait a minute. Really, I have to concentrate on music because I have to get rid of those terrible thoughts because what if they make me yank the wheel, right? But you can also do it this way. Same action. You're reaching for the radio dial and you turn it on and you're saying to yourself, okay, well, my mind is doing that crazy garbage over there. I might as well listen to music. And it's not an attempt to, it's changing the channel, really, but it's not trying to turn off the anxiety channel. It's just adding in some music while it's acting nuts over there. I don't have to get involved with that stuff that's nuts. I can listen to music, but that stuff will stop whenever it's ready. Now, that's exactly the same action, turning on the radio. But those are two entirely different things because of your attitude. You see the difference? Yes, definitely. And I'm just reminded of, for some reason, this has been happening to me lately. I blame the hormones of the pregnancy. (laughs) But like last night, I had to text my husband. Uh, I went to bed before him. And all of a sudden, I like had a flashback to when I used to be, I wasn't afraid of the dark as a child, but my grandma would watch like horror movies with me when I was like under five years old. And I remember she watched this one about it was like a real life documentary about exorcisms. And for a really long time in my life, I was afraid of, I was afraid of being possessed by the devil. <laughs> so I thought about this a couple of weeks ago. And ever since, now I have these moments when I'm walking to the dark and I'm like, what, what caused that fear when I was younger? Like, what was I thinking about? And then all of a sudden that'll 
go back to those moments. And then I'm thinking about being afraid in the dark. And then I'm thinking about these big shadows and then I'm feeling it. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, just stop thinking about this. And it just Mm -hmm. makes it worse. And last night I had to text my husband. I'm like, can you just come cuddle me to sleep? (laughs) Because I'm not feeling so well right now. And it's totally what you're talking about where the thought of the fear and then the fear of the fear created a fear of the fear itself. And it, it was just wild. Right. 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 And, and actually what you're doing right now is far more effective than being cuddled because you're laughing. And when you have the capacity to stand back and say, look at the absurdity of all of this, I've gotten all caught up in something that isn't happening. And, you know, I'm acting as if it's happening. You know, and if you can laugh just as you did right now and say to yourself, look at the process, look what I just did. Isn't this funny? Then you can you can uh, uh, soothe soothe yourself by laughing. And, you know, one of the analogies that we use all the time about this is that when people are caught up in their fear, it's like they're watching a horror movie, their bodies are going to react, you know, if you're sitting in theater, and the, you know, the chainsaw guy is coming in, and, you know, you're going to start having a rapid heartbeat, and you're going to start, you know, feeling really scared. And as you're all absorbed in the movie, that's what happens. But then if somebody next to you sneezes, suddenly you bounce back and you go, whoa, I'm in a theater. Right now, at that point, you're not scared anymore, but your body is still doing that sensitized, rapid heartbeat breathing thing for a little while longer because it's it, the alarm went off and it it takes a while to subside. And so, so when you can get a perspective that this is a movie I made up in my mind, this movie about you know the you know, the shadows are representing the devil and I'm going to get possessed and what if it happens again? And, you know, you made yourself a movie or what we call a fear narrative. And then you reacted to it as if it were really happening. And then basically you called your husband and you asked for a sneeze. (laughs) Well, it sounds so silly when you put it that way. (laughs) When you're talking about how the difference between kind of willing yourself out of your anxiety and saying like, ah, I don't, I can't think about this. Like the mistake I made last night versus these tools that you're bringing us. What it sounds like to me is that it's shifting the focus from, I am trying not to feel this anxiety to I'm trying to prove to myself that I can handle these feelings right now. And now there's, there's no proving going on. It's really a surrender. It's, it's more like uh, it's a shift in your perspective. So you can see that you got into some weird bubble and you you can see that it's a bubble and it's a shift in your attitude. And the attitude is basically, this is my mind doing this thing. I'm not being told something true. I'm, it's not true or false. These are thoughts. Thoughts are thoughts. Imagination is imagination. I'm creative. I can I can do a really great job of, of scaring myself with my own thoughts. But my attitude is I don't have to buy into what I just thought. I don't have to believe what I'm thinking. I, I don't have to join in. Let me give you a metaphor. So you're walking down the street. You can see that you're going to cross paths with this guy who's coming towards you. 
And he's, he's kind of sketchy looking. He's like wearing an old raincoat and he's sort of limping and he looks like he's muttering to himself. He doesn't look very savory. And you, you can feel it, you know, you're getting anxious, but you're really just going to cross paths with him. And right while he crosses paths with you, he turns to you and he says something horrible. Either it's disgusting or it's terrifying. So what should you do? Say something just as disgusting back. <laughs> uh, that's getting involved. Okay. <laughs> that's what we call entanglement. What most people come up with when they think about it a little bit is just keep walking, right? So you feel slimed or you feel ick or you might even feel scared, but you just keep walking. But what happens if your mind feeds you something scary and you just decide to keep walking. Don't get involved. Because if you get involved, what's going to happen? You're going to have a big fight, right? He's going to say something back. And then you're going to say something back. And then maybe somebody's going to get slapped or who knows what. And you're going to, somebody's going to end up, you know, in the slammer. So just keep walking doesn't mean pretend that he didn't say that. It doesn't mean, oh, my God, what am I going to do about this? It's just keep walking. And this is what we call the attitude of disentangling yourself from the what ifs. You just take a look. Yep, that happened. And then you keep going and you do whatever's next. If you were on your way to go make a sandwich, go make a sandwich. But you don't have to suddenly do something about it. And that's the mistake everybody makes is they feel like they have to do something about it because it feels urgent. Like, oh, you know, you get you get reactions in your body or you just get scared in your mind. And it feels like you're supposed to do something about it. But actually, if you don't do anything about it and you don't get involved, you don't get entangled, then there's no struggle. Mm. And then it takes a little while and it comes down on its own. What I love about that metaphor is it's so easy to convince yourself that, you know, why am I going to let this random stranger on the street affect my whole day? So, of course, I'm going to keep walking. That's his poison. I'm not going to take it. Exactly. But it's harder to ignore when it's coming from our own minds. And so when we can have a metaphor like that, because we're like, well, if I'm thinking this, it must be important. It must be coming from me. Maybe this is warning me of something really big. And so all of a sudden, even just those thoughts were becoming entangled with the fear. Right, right. And one of the things is if you have thoughts that repeat and they intrude and they're stuck, then you start thinking, what does this mean about me? Is this a warning? Why am I stuck on this? What's wrong with me? And you add all this level of, of reaction to it when it didn't deserve that. I mean, it's not random what gets stuck. You know, we don't have obsessions about, you know, dining room chairs. We have obsessions about, you know, perversion and violence and blasphemy and, you know, murder and, you know, bad stuff disgusting stuff. We have sessions about, you know, sexual things that are nothing like what you would want, right? But things get stuck. They're not important, but they're not random. What gets stuck is the thing that you start fighting with because the fuel that makes it stickier and stickier and stickier is your strike, your struggle against it. The thing that makes it get stuck is your own unwillingness to have it there. 
right? So it's not random. It's people who get stuck on violent thoughts. They are people for whom violent thoughts are the worst possible thing you could think. They're gentle people. And they go, oh, what is that thought? That's a horrible thought. I can't stand that thought. I'm a gentle person. I can't do that. It's the opposite of a wish. But there's some people who have violent thoughts. They don't get stuck on the thoughts. Either that is because they enjoy those thoughts, because they're not gentle people, or it goes by in a flash and they couldn't care less about it because just some stupid stuff that popped up, you know, and it's, but it's the way that you interact with that thought that either makes it stick or not. And why you would interact with it is that you're deeply and profoundly upset by it, right? It's the opposite of you. It's not a wish. It's not an impulse. It's not an urge. It's the opposite of you. And that's why you get so upset about it. So the people who are stuck with, what if I jump off a balcony, are people who want to live. They're not suicidal. They're like, that's the worst thing. What is that thought doing in my head? I love life. Why would I think such a thing? Oh, no. Am I unconsciously suicidal? No. That's just a thought that's so offensive to you. There isn't anybody who doesn't stand on a balcony and have that thought. But it got stuck for you because you were so frightened of it. That makes a lot of sense. And Earlier when we talked about how the amygdala works, basically it's just fired off before we can even think about it. Exactly. I know you said that we're not proving anything to ourselves, but it seems like unconsciously or subconsciously, we're kind of, by doing this process over and over again, we are in a way proving to ourselves like, okay, you got through that in a different way. You got through that in a different way. And then eventually, hopefully, our amygdala would stop firing in the same way for that same trigger. Is that right? Then eventually, hopefully, our amygdala would stop firing in the same way for that same trigger. Is that right? The, the, the amygdala will always fire if there's a trigger. But what keeps it going is that fear of, of the reaction. So, you, you know, it, if there's a trigger, you will get what we call a whoosh. But the whoosh can be a moment, right? But if you go, oh, no, what is it? And then you react to it. That's the second fear, and that's th- that's what gets you engaged with it. You know? so that's and a really good distinction to make because I think some people are hoping to get to this point where, you know, they just walk right in front of their fear of spiders and they feel absolutely nothing. Maybe they want to pick them up and <laughs> pet them a little bit, but to oh, yeah. that can be that can be. But if a spider surprises you, yeah. you know, even though you're very good at picking up spiders now. But if you suddenly turn around and there's a spider there, because you're surprised, right, you're going to get a little whoosh because you're surprised. That's what adrenaline is for. And so you're going to, and that's not a setback. That's just what happens. But if you then start to worry about it again, then, you, then you're, you're off and running. So you talked about how we're really surrendering to some of these feelings so that they don't become more tumultuous or or kind of expo- uh, expand upon themselves. And in your book, you talk about different steps for a therapeutic surrender. What are those ways that we can 
basically do this more gracefully. <laughs> we use the acronym DANCE. The D is discern or distinguish what's going on. In other words, notice what's happening and notice the process. You can notice this is in my imagination or I'm in a bubble or this is a memory or some way where you get it labeled so that you can see what's going on. The A for dance is accept, which means don't struggle with it. It means allow whatever is in there to be in there. Whatever's in your mind, whatever's in your body, don't struggle with it. Just don't actively allow it to be there. These are thoughts and feelings and sensations. They're not dangers, they're experiences. Then the N is for no struggling, no avoiding, no getting involved, no reassuring, no overthinking, no analyzing, no working on, don't talk to the guy. And then the commit to proceed is the C, D-A-N-C, commit means go ahead. Not You don't have to now change your plans. You don't have to definitely do it now, and you don't have to change anything about what, if you, as I said, if you were on your way to make lunch, make lunch. If you were on your way to, <clears throat> to getting on the bus, get on the bus. And the E is embrace, embrace the present moment as it is. So again, these are not tools. They are ways to remember that shift in attitude and perspective. These are not, it's not like a technique it's a shift in attitude. And that's the difference because a technique looks like I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to make it go away. And that's not what this is. This is a shift in your relationship with your anxiety. So your anxiety can be your bully and make you miserable or it can just be there. Now, if you don't give it any attention and you don't avoid things and you don't worry about it and you don't make what I call a big magilla out of a little thing, what eventually happens is your level of general sensitization goes down and your mind hands you a lot less to be anxious about. There are fewer triggers, there are fewer thoughts, there are fewer sensations. The whole thing settles down and you're not handed a lot to deal with because your sensitization is going down. But if you engage and you struggle and you fight, that keeps your sensitization up and it keeps you getting more triggers. So when you said, I'm attributing this to my hormones, you're right. The hormones increased your sensitization. That made it more likely for symptoms to come, thoughts, sensations, feelings of anxiety to come. Your job is to not make too much out of it. And then it's, a, it, it's not that that will never go away. It will. When your sensitization goes down, it tends to kind of back up, but it's, it's a passive way of having the symptoms subside on their own. They don't subside because you fight them. They subside because they're not mattering. And recovery is really when, when your worries just don't matter. They're just, they come, they go, they happen, but they're not mattering in your life. And they're not making you feel bad about yourself. And they're not making you do anything or think anything or perform anything or find your technique or now I have to go drink tea. You know, there's none of that. It just doesn't matter. 
Well, I love how actionable this episode is. I feel like it just lays out really exactly, maybe not exactly what to do, but exactly how to shift in order to alleviate some of these things that, like we said, can be really debilitating or life affecting. So for listeners that are interested in learning more about you and about this specific information in your book, where's the best place for them to connect? Well, if they're readers, they can go to Amazon and put in my name and the books will all come up. If Or you could put in the name of my co-author, Dr. Marty Seif, and they, Martin Seif, S-E-I-F, and the, the books will come up. You can get them in audiobook too, if you're better at listening than you are, or you can get it on your Kindle. If you're, if you're not a reader and you don't want to invest that much time or energy, you might want to go to um, our blog, which is uh, at psychologytoday.com. And there's a blog called Living with a Sticky Mind. They're also, if you're not a learner that way, or you want to you wanna just hear more of, of, of me, you can go to my website and then there are links to other podcasts and webinars. The Anxiety and Depression Association has webinars that uh, Dr. Seif and I have done that are, there's actually one that's, that's just gone up. Um, it's about 15 minutes on each of the three books. So it's very palatable. It's very easy. And it's, you can actually see us. We're, we're talking on a, I guess it's called a webinar. So they're, they're all different ways. We're all over the place if you, if you want to find more information. All of the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 248. Your challenge for this week is to bring some awareness around your indecision. Maybe it's around a goal that you've had for a while, your next step in a goal that you've been working on, or maybe it's just your Starbucks order. But ask yourself deeper questions about it rather than just saying, oh, I'm just indecisive, that's who I am, or I'll never be successful, I can never finish this goal. Whatever's coming up for you, ask more questions. If you're in a line at Starbucks, maybe do it after you order or maybe sit down and (laughs) do some self-reflecting and then get back up and go in line. But the only way to really disrupt a pattern is to get curious about it. And it's so true. We let things hold ourselves back and we think that there's a really good reason for it. When a lot of times it's an irrational fear that doesn't even make sense when we say it out loud. My husband and I have been working through our own fears by just talking out loud to each other. And it is so helpful because we know each other really, really well. And I might be like, well, I'm just afraid to do this because what if this happens? And he's able to just bring up a past experience and be like, has that ever happened before? What about when this happened? Why are you only going back to your failures rather than your successes? Whatever it is, it's going to be specific to you. And you don't even need a partner to do it. Usually, you have all the answers you need inside of you. You're just not allowing yourself to see them beyond your fears. So get curious. Maybe this looks like a meditation session. Maybe it looks like journaling things out so you slow down a little bit. Maybe you talk out loud to yourself. There's a lot of ways to do this. So let me know how it goes. And if you need assistance, I'm always there on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you love this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those five-star reviews are so much better than even a pumpkin spice latte. And you know that saying something, I know you do. It can be short and sweet. It can be long and detailed. I honestly love them all equally. 
If you'd like to support Mind Love, you can leave one of those five-star reviews we just talked about, or you can join Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get episodes a day early. You get them without ads. You also get a whole backlog of over 50 episodes that you can only listen to if you are a premium member, and you even get meditations and other bonuses. So that's at mindlove.com slash premium or right there in the podcast app. And finally, you can support one of my amazing sponsors, and they're all listed at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 